This weekend, even though we're worshiping differently, spread out all over the area, connecting with one another by way of technology, I want to continue the study that we began a couple of months ago, the study of the Bible's first book, the book of Genesis. We reminded you at the beginning that it was a sermon before it was a book. A sermon preached by Moses to a group of people who were greatly discouraged, disheartened, beaten down and beaten up by years of slavery. They needed to know that God existed. They needed to know he was powerful. They needed to know he was in their corner and that he had better things in store for them. And that's ultimately what Genesis is really about. Helping people see a big God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, and to realize that that big God wants to do great things in their hearts and in their lives. We titled this series, Living Out of Eden. And I think you would agree with me this week, we've certainly been reminded that we are living out of Eden. Today we come to chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, and it's so appropriate because it tells us how we got to be out of Eden. Now, I want to open today by drawing a parallel. It may seem unusual at first. A parallel between an unfortunate cultural term from a bygone era and an event that Moses referenced in Genesis chapter 3. It used to be said of a woman known to have a past in sexual immorality that she, quote, has a past. End quote. It was an unfortunate and rather unfair description because that term, she has a past, was never used of men. They got a free pass. But here's the parallel I want to draw. The words once used to explain why some women found themselves on the outside of society looking in, that same phrase, that same terminology, explains why we currently find ourselves out of Eden and locked into a mess, one that includes pandemics. We find ourselves out of Eden because humanity, quote, has a past, end quote. And as Moses reminds us in his sermon that became a book, that past didn't begin with a bang, it began with a whisper. Specifically, a whispered lie designed to resonate with the most dangerous tendency in the human heart. That lie is recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. I've titled our study today, The False Center. And as is our custom, I invite you from home to join me as we pray together. Spirit of the living God, as always, even though our circumstances are different today, you're the same. We're your church, and we're here to receive your word. 
I pray that your spirit would enable me to teach and preach it accurately and faithfully. I pray that you would help everyone listening to understand it and apply it in their life. Because we're not here to garner information, we're here to experience transformation. And you can do it for us in our homes just as well as when we're gathered together in a sanctuary. So help us to erect a sanctuary for the Holy Spirit in every one of our hearts. Meet us there, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And I would say to you at home as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. The events recorded in Genesis 3 beg the question, in a creation unspoiled by sin, why? Why did God prohibit the consumption of fruit from one specific tree? And I would remind you that was the only thing he prohibited. What did God hope to gain? What was his end game? And didn't he realize that that prohibition made sin and all of its devastating effects a distinct possibility? Well, it's a fair question. And while Scripture doesn't answer it directly, I believe Scripture suggests an answer. God's command wasn't an unnecessary temptation to evil. It was a necessary invitation to blessing. James 1 makes it clear that God never tempts human hearts to evil. It would be contrary to his nature. The impulse to sin always originates within us, within our own desires. Now, once we choose evil, God may use the effects of that evil to alert us to our need of repentance and restoration or to reveal his superior power as he did with Pharaoh during Moses' day. But God doesn't entice people to sin. So God's prohibition wasn't meant to produce a destructive fall. It was meant to produce a defining faith. Now let me explain that. Earlier, God declared that we are created in his image. And we know God possesses intellect and virtue and will. He makes informed choices that reflect his love and his character. So for Adam and Eve to truly reflect his image and for them to be fully human, they would need that same essential capacity, the capacity to make informed decisions that reflect the love of God. And choice, the last time I checked, requires options. In addition, we were created to find our freedom inside loving obedience to our loving Creator. And loving obedience is a wholly meaningless term unless there is a possibility of unloving disobedience. So God's prohibition was necessary 
because we needed a choice. It was necessary for loving obedience to have meaning and for loving obedience to become a reality. It set up Adam and Eve not for a fall, but for a defining choice and a defining faith. The choice to love and obey God and the faith to follow his words rather than their own perceptions, their own impulses, and their own feelings. Now that suggests another question. Why does God command obedience and love? Is he insecure? Is he self-centered? Is he a control freak? Again, fair questions. So let me suggest three Scripture-based answers. First, a meaningful life requires an awareness of what is most valuable and what is most enduring in the universe. Absent that awareness, we lack a reliable basis for determining our priorities and making wise choices in life. And nothing is more valuable and nothing is more enduring than God. Loving obedience to Him underscores that reality and positions us to order our lives appropriately. It protects us from erecting our life on ultimately disappointing illusions. Second, God's love and His ways are perfect. So loving obedience to Him is always in our best interest. Loving obedience to God doesn't add anything to God, but it adds everything valuable to our experience. And third, the universe is Christ. Centered. Colossians 1 makes that clear. And in a Christ centered universe, self centeredness is a false center that distracts us from reality. Because we are not the center of the universe. And the understanding of that unmasks the lie that we read in our opening text. Satan was inviting Adam and Eve to something inferior, posing as something superior. And every temptation presents something inferior as something superior. Satan's invitation reminds us that the oldest temptation is the impulse to pride. The illusion that we know better than our Creator. Now, Satan was the first to embrace that fantasy. Listen to his words recorded in Isaiah 14. I will exalt myself. I will ascend to the throne of the universe. I will be like the Most High. He quickly discovered that arrogance is no substitute for capability. He wasn't fit for the throne of his universe, the universe God created, and so God brought him down. But... The delusions of pride often endure despite mountains of evidence to the contrary. So Satan pressed forward in his arrogance. He sought human subjects. And toward that end, he gained the attention of our ancestors with this suggestion. God is holding out on you. 
If you will challenge that prohibition, you'll discover that you possess the capacity to be his equal. In fact, you might have the capacity to be his superiors. You can create a better life for yourselves free of this unnecessary restriction. Now, seduced by their pride even more than by Satan's lie, Adam and Eve trusted their thoughts and their feelings and their assessments of things more than God's Word. They placed greater confidence in what seemed good to them than they did in what God pronounced good in His words to them. And they ate. And they quickly learned that evil is always better in imagination than it is in reality, while holiness is always better in reality than it is in imagination. That's why God invites us to taste and see that He is good. Well, we all know what happened next. They did discover new knowledge of good and evil. For the very first time in their lives, they had a knowledge of the absence of good and the presence of evil. Two things God never intended them to know. So little wonder we still say to this day, the devil is in the details. Adam and Eve discovered that where human pride sees restrictions, God birthed humility sees protections. Pride assumes that God's commands are hindrances to freedom, hindrances to fulfillment. They're weights we need to cast away. But humility learns that the weight of God's commands, well, that's like the weight of the engines on an aircraft. It's the weight that makes progress possible. Refusing God's commands doesn't enable us to soar. It leaves us grounded. Now, the reason we're living out of Eden, in a world that bears little resemblance to the one described in Genesis open lines or the one described in Revelation's closing lines, The reason we're living in a world with pandemics is because we, as a human family, have a past. Our ancestors fell victim to their pride. And in so doing, they unleashed a tendency that has not only devastated human life, but it has devastated God's physical creation with devastating results. Now, from this point forward... I want to remind you of several things. I want to remind you of pride's deficiencies. I want to remind you of its growing influence in our culture. I want to remind you of the tragic growing influence of pride in the body of Christ. And finally, of the central role human pride will play in the days just prior to Jesus' return. Let's begin with pride's inherent deficiencies. In a universe where Christ is the center, pride is the ultimate disorienting sin because it's the false center. It renders us incapable of discerning reality. We become infatuated with the illusion that we are superior to God in determining what is best. 
Then we deem God irrelevant and self all-important. We push God to the margins and we place self at the center and then we redraw the borders of morality to please the new king. Eventually, the echo chamber of pride leads us to become what the Bible describes as wise in our own eyes. We become unteachable fools, often in error, but never in doubt. We find ourselves always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And eventually, pride leads us to fall into spiritual, logical madness, pronouncing good evil and evil good. In many respects, pride is a blindness that we choose. It renders us incapable of seeing reality. I don't think you need me to tell you the tragedy of Eden is being replayed in contemporary American culture. Satan is still whispering, has God said? No, you can't believe that. And many, sadly, are responding just like our ancestors. As a result, we find ourselves in a culture that celebrates pride rather than condemning it. We make the self sovereign rather than God. The self exists to be explored and indulged and validated and affirmed and expressed, but never, never, never condemned, corrected, rebuked, disciplined, or restrained. Wants are seen as needs, and needs are believed to be rights. And soon, society is reduced to little more than competing egos. Human feelings override science, history, logic, experience, common sense, and Scripture. But God is on record. Our feelings are not God. God is God. And our feelings don't define truth. God's Word defines truth. You see, our feelings are just echoes and responses to what our minds perceive. And Scripture declares our minds are deficient and they are deceptive. Apart from God's transforming, enlightening work, they are out of sync with the truth of the universe and they are incapable of understanding that truth. For those reasons, God's people in a disoriented culture must not attempt to alter God's truth so that it aligns with our imperfect, misguided feelings. Instead, we need to ask God to purify our perceptions and transform our feelings so that they are in sync with His eternal, unchanging truth. Sadly, it appears some who claim to follow Jesus have forgotten that reality. Spiritually, socially, emotionally blackmailed by popular accusations of ignorance and fear and bigotry and hatred, it appears far too many Jesus followers are taking their cues from our off-center, disoriented culture. They use nuanced words to suggest just as Satan did, that God didn't mean what he clearly said. Rather than condemn sin, they end up endorsing it. Sometimes they call themselves 
red-letter Christians aligned with the words of Jesus, but they violate much of what Jesus said. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the teaching of the prophets. I came to fulfill the teaching of the prophets. They declare themselves progressive, woke, even elite, But they replace the quest for holiness with the quest for self-fulfillment. They replace the quest for truth with the quest to be true to one's feelings. And they echo Satan's whisper. You can't take God's words literally. Trust your own innate goodness. Trust your own thinking. They forget that any assault on God's Word is an assault on God Himself, an assault on God's character. And so they suggest it's time for a new Christianity. But sadly, their words echo the oldest lie. You too shall be as God's. Now, all this may mean that we are in the last days prior to Jesus' return. I don't know if that's the case. That knowledge is way above my pay grade. But I do know Scripture indicates when those days finally arrive, the sin that birthed man's rebellion will be at the forefront of the rebellion's final days. Uh, Today, in this different format, we talked about pride. Because we can't afford to ignore it. We ignore it at our own peril and our own loss. But I want to remind you in closing that the sin of pride is not at the center of the gospel. Christ is at the center of the gospel, just as Christ is at the center of the universe. And the events chronicled in Genesis 3 did not catch God by surprise. Long before Adam and Eve got off track, God had already got to work. He devised a plan for our restoration, a plan that had Christ at the center of it, just as He is at the center of the universe. A plan that replaces pride with humility, feelings with faith. Illusions with guarantees. Fear and shame with liberating grace. And God is still inviting us through faith in Jesus to return to the true center. One final thought before I pray. If you've read Genesis 3 and 4, you'll know that the first manifestation of man's fallen condition was fear. Fear. And the more things change, the more they remain the same. The further our culture dives into pride and replaces humble obedience to God with human arrogance, the greater the pandemic of fear that we are going to experience. But God does not give a spirit of fear. And those who know the true center of the universe can build lives of defining faith, defining choices, humility, utter dependence upon God, and know that they are building for the long haul. Where you are, I invite you to join me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, even though something catastrophic happened in human history, 
And even though that catastrophic event lies at the foundation of what we're experiencing these days, Father, we're thankful that that catastrophic event doesn't have to define our life, and it doesn't have to define our future, and it doesn't have to define our eternity. We can choose to place Christ at the center of our universe. We can choose to place Christ at the center of our hearts. We can choose devotion to Christ as the organizing principle in our life. We can choose the true center. And from there, in humility, we can build lives of dignity and hope and purpose and significance and confidence and trust and faith and expectation and peace and joy. Father, if this pandemic is reminding this culture of things, it's reminding this culture that having built upon a false center, folks have nowhere to turn for true peace and confidence, for hope and expectancy. But the true center of the universe remains in place. And I pray for anyone who's listening to this teaching today, who hasn't yet made Jesus the center, I pray that this teaching from your word in this hour and in these circumstances would be the moment when your spirit would draw them to a life-defining faith. Thank you for making that possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.